0: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education, and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. <laughs>
2: Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm the Director of Westbridge Community Services, and today I am broadcasting from Hobart College in upstate New York. And my guest um, is Dr. David Powell, the President of the International Center for Health Concerns. Um, He is involved in the education and training of healthcare professionals worldwide and spends six months of the year living and working in Asia. He has been in the Addiction Behavioral Health professions since 1965, when he was a mere child, and has authored seven texts in the field. Dr. Powell is currently involved in assisting in establishing Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and Al-Anon in the People's Republic of China. He's a consultant to Peking University Institute of Mental Health, and he is, um, was a co-leader of the First Addiction Institute in China in September 2002 in Beijing. Um, Dr. Powell consults all around the world and is currently focusing on Asia. And I would like to begin, um, Dr. Powell, talking a little bit, um, saving the Asia for later in our pro- program, but really talking about men's issues, men's recovery. Um, for a long time we've kind of neglected, I think, men, and um, we hear a lot about women in midlife, Um but men seem to be people that we just kind of think age and seem to have no issues. And I was wondering if you would like to speak a little bit about men in the second, in life second half.
3: Thanks, Mary. Thank you for the honor of being here today, uh, and thanks for that really nice introduction. I can hardly wait to hear myself speak now. Um, it, the issues are, You're absolutely right. What the data says to us is that for the people that come for substance abuse issues, alcohol and drug abuse issues, 70% of the people that come for treatment are men. Uh, the question always is, does that adequately represent the issues of men and women? And as we know, it's it's sometimes more difficult for women to seek treatment. So it doesn't necessarily mean that 50% of those with with problems in the United States are men. That 70% are men. It's probably pretty balanced, but there are many cultural barriers for women to get treatment as well as the stigma that's associated. But 70% of the patients that we treat are men. Uh, 70% of the caregivers in the substance abuse field are women, and that number is going up. It's now the, of the new people coming into the field, it's estimated that 75% of them are women. So as any time we're dealing with cultural proficiency or competency, it's important for us to have some understanding of what the unique needs are for, uh, for that population, particularly for men. Especially if the uh, majority of the caregivers are going to be women um, that's,
2: that's an interesting dynamic when you think about um, women providing treatment to men when there is such a cultural difference and what what are the um, the barriers to to that dynamic and what are the um, the benefits to women providing treatment for
3: men. Uh, yeah, let me first say that there is nothing that, that would say that in terms of the research that uh, women or men are any better caregivers in terms of working with men. From my own anecdotal experience, I think that some wonderful things happen when men get into men-specific groups with men as role models. Uh, I'm not allowed in the women's group, so I don't know what happens in there. But, uh, but I'm told in women's separate groups that some, some different dynamics happen. When men get to be in a mixed group, uh, more of a, homogeneous, a heterogeneous type of group, uh, men will often uh, defer to the women to carry the effective responsibility of the group. In other words, that uh, we as men can stay in our heads and be very cognitive while the women in the group end up carrying the emotional burden of that. Um, The other thing that happens, and people ask me kind of, if you could kind of simplify, what is it unique issues around working with men and being men? One of the things is that we as men often tend to compare, contrast, and compete. So there's a certain amount of uh, head-butting or uh, chest-butting that we tend to do when we're together. One of the first questions that often gets asked when, when a group of men get together and we greet each other, the first question we will often ask each other is, what do you do? Uh, and I'm told that's not always necessarily the uh, same question that women ask each other when they get together. Uh, and the reason we do that is it's my way of getting some idea of how we stack up with each other, how we compare. And so that level of competitiveness is going to happen for men when they get in groups. And so for women working with men, it's to understand that, that that's clearly a part of that. The other thing I think that's important for us to understand is that um, if some of the women listening in can probably uh, identify with this, and that's that we don't access our emotions and our feelings quite so readily as women can. And uh, so we... Tend again to stay in our heads. So, one of the first questions you'll ask when you go into counseling is So, what are your feelings? Well, that's the last question I want to be talking about, thank you. Uh, I'd much rather be talking about um, some other things. And so, when you work with men, you don't want to come in the front door and get into emotions. You want to come in what I call the back door. You want to get at it through different ways. I should say something right up front, and that is that we have to be careful of stereotyping and saying all men are like this and all women are like that, because the minute you try to do that, someone's going to say, "Well, I'm not like that." So, uh, but we we want to talk more about patterns and trends that may be gender specific. Now, in the past, what what's happened is uh, in in many treatment programs, men and women would be treated together. Over the last 15 years or so, 10 to 15 years, uh, the focus has been more on gender-separate programs, keeping people in, uh, in their own gen- unique genders, uh, and now we're getting to the point of saying, well, beyond that, we need to have gender-specific programs, which is to say that um, maybe there are some unique issues that we have to address when working with, each, um, with men and with women. Um, so I don't know that that answers your question in terms of what the issues are for women working with men, but I think it's a case of being aware of the differences in how we communicate. Uh, and there's ample research to say that we don't always talk the same language. We don't always communicate in the same way.
2: Well, um, just personally, I can certainly vouch for that. Um, I have a wonderful 20-year-old son who... Um, from the day he was born, I really realized that he just thinks differently. Mm-hmm. You know, he sees the world differently. He communicates differently, and um, and it's really been um, a lifelong journey trying to get both he and I on the same page sometimes because um, we just see things so differently. And that's kind of helped me in my own clinical work as well because I think I was very much a part of the stereotype of you know um, you know men just get sober and, you know, they they deal with their feelings or they don't deal with their feelings. And um, I know in growing up in this profession, we rarely ever talked about men having eating disorders or men having past sexual trauma um, or, you know, a lot of the issues that they really do have. But we just thought, okay, these are women-specific issues and they're not.
3: Let me ask you, when you want to have a conversation with your son, where's the best place for you to have that?
2: In a restaurant over a meal.
3: Okay. Uh, many people will say in a car when I'm driving somewhere. Yes. yes. Uh, or in front of the TV screen, watching a movie sometimes even.
2: Yes. And
3: I use that as an example because uh, for us as men, often having something else that's distracting to us, uh, many women will say, you know, if I want to really have a conversation with my husband, we'll drive somewhere. There's something about being in a car, uh, having something else happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that will often happen for women is they'll come home and um, they'll want to talk to their husband or his partner about the day that they've had. And the first thing he'll do is pick up the newspaper or turn on the TV, which infuriates the wife. And she says, you know, pay, pay attention, I want to talk. And yet there 's something about that shield or that distraction that makes it easier. The point of that is that if you want to engage a man in these kinds of affective discussions, then you have to find some other way of getting to it rather than kind of face to face we don 't do as men face to face communication as well mm-hmm. um, you want to you want to have a good conversation, go for a walk together. Right. Um, the walk and talks. Often are more effective because again you're doing something, um, and the first measurement a man will have is by defining what do I do, right. uh, and that in some way describes who we are as well, men.
2: That's, that's really interesting because you know most of the traditional addiction programs that I've worked in, um, group is group therapy and group education and group discussion has been such a a big part of of the treatment process, and um, I can't tell you the number of groups that we've sat in silence. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, I'm not saying that group is not an effective medium. Uh, Group certainly is, because some of my most favorite times are when I get in a group of other men, and um, we may grunt a lot, uh, but something happens in that when we get together with other men. It's just that instead of sitting down and saying, so what do you want to talk about today or what are you feeling, uh, there's other ways to get to that. Um, and if if you want to get to men's feelings, uh, the one legitimate feeling that I'm allowed to have in society as a man is, what would you say, Mary, is the one emotion that I'm permissible to have? Anger? Yep. And much of what passes as male anger is actually sadness. Uh, there's a sense of loss and grieving that's under the surface, but it will come up as uh, anger. And so my one-liner that I use in working with men is that if you don't transform your pain, you transmit it. And I transmit that in the form of anger. Whatever pain, uh, loss, grieving I may have um, we uh, will come out a- as anger, and yet under the surface there's something else that you have to face. So if you want to get to men's emotions, there are there are several things that are key in, in working with men. Um, the first is if, uh, is for men to talk about men and their fathers. For most of us, our father relationship is so fundamental. It is certain was certainly in my life. When my dad died three years ago. So talk about men and their fathers.
2: As we um, get ready to go to break, why don't we um, talk more about men and their fathers after this next commercial with Dr. Davis Powell.
3: Thank you.
1: If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order.
5: 800-380-4259 800-380-4259 Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259 800-380-4259
0: A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
2: Welcome back, everyone, and uh, we're going to continue our discussion about um, men and their fa- fathers with Dr. David Powell. Uh, David, you were talking about how that relationship that a man has with his father is so pivotal. Pi- I'm sorry, so pivotal, pivotal in um, their development and who they are as, as people. Uh, could you speak a little bit more about that? And also, could you address so many people that we see have such poor relationships with their fathers which
3: for for most men uh, the father son relationship taught us what it means to be a man When I looked at my father, um, particularly now as I get older and I look in the mirror and I think, oh no, I'm turning into my father. And I see, and women may have the same thing with their mothers, but I see all of those qualities there. And it's so often to see a, a substance abuser in treatment and I'll hear the man say, you know, I didn't want this to happen in my life, but I'm doing to my children exactly what my father did to me, and I hate that within myself, and I feel so guilty and shameful about what I've done. So that relationship for so many men is pivotal. For better or worse, whatever that was, there there are a lot of emotions there. Uh, for some of from some of our patients, particularly if you're dealing with mandated or court-appointed patients, they may never never have really known their father. Um, And in the current generation now, Uh, When my dad would go off to work in New York, uh, we grew up in New York, uh, I never really quite knew what he did. I knew he did some office kind of stuff, but it's different today than 100 years ago when men and their fathers learned to trade together, and that was your role model. We don't have that anymore. And so what I fear today, it's not young girls that go into the schools that shoot up the buildings. It's the young boys. We see a lot of angry young boys who don't know what to do with that because they don't really have any positive male role models in their lives. So the issue really is how do you get to those feelings, those emotions, without coming on through the front door but coming in the back door? Uh, there's several ways that I would suggest. One is that if you want to get to those emotions, it does not take much. One simple exercise that we do is I like to show movies to the men. Uh, I like the uh, the little film clip at the middle of uh, the movie City Slickers where Billy Crystal and his two buddies are walking across the prairie and uh, they're talking about the best day in their life and the worst day in their life. And all the three stories have something to do with the father, for better or worse. Another movie that I I like, and I'm not too ashamed above this to show the movie Field of Dreams, uh, it's got what we like to think of as a 95% tear factor. If you show that last segment where Kevin Costner walks out on the ball field and he sees his father as a young man, and at the very end they reach out and they shake hands and he says, Dad, you want to play catch? And uh, and it works for women, too, but there's something that kind of is our typo that gets you in touch with that craving that all men have had at some point, either to express that anger that they have towards their father or that affection, that there's something that we long for that's missing in most of our lives. So those are some of the backdoor ways of getting at that. Another exercise that I'll often do with men is to put a chair in the middle of the room and ask them to introduce their father to the group. Initially, you're going to get the men who had loving, caring relationships, but then slowly it will start to, you'll, you'll start to see some of those negative um, expressions come out. And uh, I, as many times as I've seen this done, there's a way of bringing up those emotions that are very painful for so many men. Um, so there's that, that relationship is so fundamental uh, that it's a relationship that has caused great pain that we've got to get to at some point for the men.
2: As, as men age, um, how does this relationship um, with their dad, um, does it grow? Does it, is it a is it yearning that you still have at middle age?
3: It's a yearning I think that carries through all of our lives because it is a wound that will never go away for most of us. As positive as my relationship was with my father, there was still conflict. Uh, we butted heads an awful lot in my twenties, and so and now that my dad is deceased, he died at eighty-nine. There's an affection, but for a lot of us, we've no we don't make that turn. Um, I did somewhere in my thirties where I began to be able to forgive my dad for not being the man that I thought he should have been, but if you never make that turn, we carry that into our older age. Um, the questions in the second half of life really become very different kind of questions uh, in my first half of life, I really wrestled with questions about we wrestle with how are we going to live. Uh, how are we going to support ourselves? What are some of the, the life issues that we have to face? Um, how, what kind of job am I going to get? Um, but in the second half of life, we start to ask questions about why, uh, kind of like the, the what's it all about questions. Uh, and. So you start to really wrestle with different issues around what it means to be a father, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a husband uh, or a partner to my partner, uh, what it means to be a, a worker. And that's a very different kind of question for us in the second half. And, and people always ask, well, when does the second half of life happen? And I always say that if, if you're asking that question of whether you're in life second half, you probably already are. Um, and, and there are four markers that indicate where we are in life. The first marker we would call biological. And that is if you're 40 years or older, you're probably in life second half as a man because life expectancy for men is somewhere around 78, 79. Now, you may live longer than that, but if you're 45, you're probably in life's second half already. The second marker is social, and that is when you've worked more years than you're going to work, when the kids are starting to be teenagers and moving out of the house, and uh, you're beginning to face the possibility of an empty nest. And I always say that when we dropped our daughter off for college in, at University of Vermont, the empty nest for my wife and myself lasted about one hour. Uh, we were ready to move on in life. And you're clearly in life's second half then. The third marker is emotional. That's the old line, you're only as old as you feel. Uh, well, when you're in your 40s, um, you know, you can put up with a little bit more of the pain. But when you're in your 50s and 60s, uh, you can't quite do the things that you once thought you were able to do. Um, and I always say, be careful of the man who says at 50 that he can do what he was doing at 20. He probably wasn't doing much at 20 uh, because there are some limitations that start to happen for us. And then the last marker is spiritual. And that's where you start to ask very different questions about life. And you start to look at life differently uh, when you start to realize that I can see the end of this thing called work at some point. Maybe not in the immediate horizon, but I can see it happening and coming for me uh, and An interesting thing happens for those of us dealing with substance abuse. I give you a statistic sixty five percent of the pharmaceuticals in America are used by people over the age of sixty five and as the boomers, we grew up on drugs, and as we age here we 're going to find some very interesting phenomenon. In terms of how the boomers are going to look at trying to carry their youth into old age, and, and how they're going to look at alcohol and drugs, um, it's going to change the whole landscape of how we do business. And working with a 50-year-old, 40-year-old drug addict is very different than working with a 20-year-old, and very different than working with a 70-year-old. Uh, we're going to face some very different issues as that population ages.
2: Um, what are the issues that you see that might be different?
3: Well, some of the issues are going to be, um, for instance, working with a 50-year-old today, that 50-year-old wants to take youth into his old age. Uh, when you think about images we all carry with us about what age was, those were images that you had uh, from your grandparents which don't exist anymore. Uh, you have more vitality and youth at your age than, than your grandparents did at a comparable age. So how we look at aging and wanting to be active it doesn't take much to look at the ads on tv uh... nowadays in terms of showing how we can be active and vibrant well into our fifties and sixties and seventies and eighties um, and i love the tv commercial the commercials that talk about um, uh, erectile dysfunction here we've got people like bob dole advertising for erectile dysfunction um, and so the images of what it means to be a man and to be an older man are are changing here um, so and and along with that comes uh, a desire to in some ways stay active and physically vibrant as well as uh, career work. Um, hospitals have gotten this they understand this as does the Peace Corps and they for instance the most active recruitment right now for the Peace Corps is men over the age of 55 uh, They have discretionary income in a lot of cases they've got free time uh, and hospitals get it they understand that if you want a vibrant workforce, recruit volunteers from who are in their 50s and 60s now who want to give back. Uh, issues around generativity here, which is what Eric Erickson called that desire to kind of give back to life in, in general. And when you look at those of us that are boomers, that was what shaped a lot of us in the, in the 60s, was the desire to do something different, to make an impact on our world. So that age cohort, when we get older, is going to be a profoundly different age cohort than what your parents and grandparents had when they were in a comparable age. Um,
2: earlier, David, you know, when you talked about um, one of the things that men do when they first meet each other is, is say, well, what do you do? And as, as men age specifically, um, and it gets time to, to look at, okay, I'm at the end of my work life is is coming near. I've seen a lot of men just kind of who were very um, independent and strong and vibrant. When they get to that point where they retire, they just fall apart. Yeah. Um. We
3: don't know what to do with ourselves uh, when you take away work. And that's why many men will say to me in their 60s, uh, I don't know what else to do. This, I, I like what I do, so why would I want to stop doing this? I don't want to sit around and play golf all day long. Some do, some don't. Um, so what are you going to do with that leisure time? At least historically, up until the, the uh, mid-1950s or so, men died. Most of us died in our 60s, and so it wasn't much of an issue. Uh, you retired at 62, and you died at 65. But now they've added 20 years to our lives. What are we going to do with those years?
2: And unfortunately for some men, it's drink. They, yeah, that's they right. They haven't been able to find a, a solution for those Extra 20 years. Um, please join us when we come back uh, from this next commercial, and we'll be talking to Dr. David Powell. Uh-huh.
4: Sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, Families into Recovery for Co occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders.
1: For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranese's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any.
5: Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel.
2: and welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, We've been speaking for the past half hour with Dr. David Powell and we've been talking about um, men in recovery, uh, men's issues in general in terms of midlife and um, what men need to do to be able to transition into retirement and the second half of life. Uh, David has a new book coming out in January. Um, It's called Healing Men, A Toolbox for Life. Uh, David, would you like to talk a little bit about um, the toolbox and what men need in order to heal?
3: Well, the the title was obviously chosen carefully with the idea that we all like to, uh, to tinker and to use various tools. And so the concept here is that when we are working with men to use a variety of mediums to get away from this idea. I'm not sure where we ever got the idea that counseling or therapy should be talk, um, that there 's other ways of getting to that, and we talked earlier about instead of uh, sitting face to face maybe go walk, go for a walk, do walks on talks that 's that 's one of the tools that we talk about, creating some level of physical distance there. Uh, sitting at an angle, sitting side by side, as a way of uh, getting people engaged. Uh, other tools that we suggest is using male metaphors and language. Uh, not that all men use sports metaphors, but they work for many of us uh, as ways of uh, reinforcing uh uh men when we work in in group uh we men tend to like structure so we focus in the toolbox on things like um, providing check-in times as well as as well as having some form of gathering rituals together and I'll talk a little later about some of those what those rituals are uh we mentioned earlier before the break about video work and using various video techniques with men um, I like to use music because uh, there's something primal again about working with music and there's a whole array of tunes from Kenny Chesney's and uh, Keith Urban if you're into country western music um, Elton John has a, a wonderful song about fathers and sons called The Last Song uh, some of Bruce Springsteen's music called "The Father," My Father's House uh, certainly Cat in the Cradle with uh, uh, who did that?
2: Harry Nielsen?
3: No, Harry Chapin. Harry Chapin. So playing music, just playing a little bit of music to get to that primal level. Uh, Activity therapy, a lot of treatment programs have gone to activity therapy for both men and women, from equine therapy to ropes courses. Uh, From what I've observed, the the challenges are different between men and women and how they look at it. Uh, We like to play games. Men like games. Uh, again, we go back and say men are very competitive. So one of the games that I like to play is the game Jenga. If you're familiar with that, yeah. it's a way of uh, we 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 like to build tall towers as men. And so it's of wood blocks. So you take out a block and you put it on the top, and then you have various games going on at the same time. And whoever's tower is the tallest at the end without falling over wins. And when you pull a block out, there's a little slip of paper that you have to answer a question—not uh, by giving a thesis, but just a one-liner sentence. So you might design your own questions, like, "When I think of my father, uh, what comes to mind?" Or, "If my father was standing in front of me today, I would want to say to him." So you can design any series of questions, but it's all in the context of the game. It gets fun and playful. But really, there's something else that's happening as a way of getting to those issues. Uh, another thing that we talk about in the toolbox is I, I like to use poetry. Some of my current all-time favorite poets would be the poet David White, who is a poet for the Fortune 500. Um, uh, William Butler Yeats had a wonderful way of addressing men's issues in his poetry. Uh, one other issue that we do is something called rituals. Rituals. Um, A good ritual, uh, we don't have many rituals in our life yet, uh, left anymore, but a ritual should do two things for us. A ritual is something that is so real I cannot escape it. It, It's authentic. It it strikes at my heart and I know what that's about. like the scene that I talked about earlier in, in Field of Dreams where... He asks him, do you want to play catch, Dad? That's a ritual in some way that men had of playing catch and sports together. The second thing a good ritual does is that it uh, is dramatic. I can't run away from it. This is so dramatic. So there's various rituals that we do in working with men that are a way of getting to those emotional levels without uh, our really talking about that directly. I can give you two rituals that we use very quickly here, Mary. Okay. Uh, One ritual is called the forgiveness card, and it's a card where... And I've done this in various cultures. I I did it this year in way high up in the Himalayan mountains in a country called Bhutan, uh, where uh, the same traditions uh, worked for them in that culture. And how this works is you write on a a 3x5 card or a piece of paper... Something that you did in your life that you about which you feel you need forgiveness for, uh, and this is done anonymously. We tell men that no one will ever know what you wrote down on that card, and then when the cards are collected, we we gather the cards together, sort them out and then everybody in the group gets to read somebody else's card, not knowing who that is. When you listen to what you need forgiveness for, it really has a profound influence on people. Um, people say things like, hey, I, I'm not alone, I'm not the only one that did that, and hearing somebody else's uh, thing that they need forgiveness for is very freeing. And Then we gather the cards back together, put it in a pot, Hopefully, we go outside at some point. If it's night, that's wonderful, or some uh, way out of nature by a brook or something very natural. And then we burn the cards, and we sit there and we watch the smoke go up as the cards are uh, incinerated. And there's a sense of forgiveness that we then feel. And I, I don't have to talk about it. I can just kind of let go of whatever that is that uh, that I needed forgiveness for. It works well with men and women, but it's especially effective, I think, when working with men who feel that they need some kind of forgiveness. And rather than face-to-face and ask them, what do you want forgiveness for, it's a back backdoor way of kind of getting to that.
2: Which seems to be the message here in working with men is we need to find a backdoor um, to to be able to really help men get in touch with their feelings.
3: Yeah, and, and I, I don't even use that language in terms of getting in touch with their feelings. What we basically talk about is more, what do you need to let go of? Mm -hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I would recommend do away with that word feelings when you, when you work with men. I know that it's a sacred word here. Uh, we always, therapists like to get to our feelings. But I... Especially women. Yeah, right. Well, uh it's not a place I want to go to readily, thank you. Uh we would much rather use words like how do you react when that happens? What goes on inside of you when you see that happen? You're talking about the same thing, but we just don't use that word. Uh it's you know, if you want to see a man panic, just ask him how are you feeling? Um and he's out the door. Um uh, and so it's another way of getting to it. Uh, you know, eventually we can soften up and we can talk about our feelings, but not initially. Uh, it's a way of getting there. Another activity that we do, which is a very powerful activity, which I call the grieving cup. And these are written about in detail in the toolbox for life, um, healing men. And what we do is we take a cup, hopefully something very Native American, terracotta type of thing that has some real feel to it, and we pass the cup around and we ask you to breathe into the cup the name of person in your life about whom you're grieving. Um, uh, can be a father figure, whatever that person is, a lost child. Um, and silently, no one will know who you breathe into that cup, that name. And we pass it around. You have the option of passing. You don't have to participate if you don't want to. When the cup comes back to me as the leader, I and this is done in a very sacred way, I will hold the cup up and dedicate the names of the people that have been breathed into in that cup and dedicate their names and return those names back to where they came from. And we'll ask everyone to close their eyes. And then I'll take the cup and I'll drop it on the floor and the cup shatters all over. Uh, there's usually some sense of shock in there, um, surprise when you hear the cup break. Um, and then we just sit there and just deal, just be present to what just happened there. What nine out of ten times will happen for the men is they'll say, there's a real sense of relief. I don't have to hold on to that name or that person anymore and uh there will be some feelings of anger some men will say you know I'm angry that you shattered that that was a sacred name that I breathed into that cup and I don't want to let go of that person so in which case we invite them to come up and take a piece of the pottery chart off the floor as a way of holding on to that but it is this generally a sense of real relief and release that that this is something I have been holding on to for a long time, that I don't have to hold on to any longer. So these are some rituals that we use There's many rituals that are part of men's work. And in the toolbox for life, uh, healing men's book, uh, you'll find about a hundred different uh, activities and rituals that you can do with men as a way of getting to those emotions.
2: You had mentioned earlier about gathering together mm-hmm. that 's another thing that 's very effective
3: well, just gathering for instance, um, again, it may sound kind of hokey, but when we get together with men we 'll do uh, use a variety of music and drumming uh, there 's something very primal and, and i 'm told that women like this too, but we 'll gather together around a campfire and again. For most of us, doing something physical and outside is very primal and gets in touch with something very archetypal within us. And I've been in in gatherings of men at treatment centers where we will drum for two or three hours, uh, at night. It becomes really physical without being violent and as a way of doing something very physical. Uh, I have never had any sons in my life, but women that uh, people that have had sons uh are will always say how surprised they are at the physicality of the boys uh, and how they they just there's some level of wrestling and whereas women will do that maybe verbally, men will do it more physically, mm-hmm. so we don't want to get into really highly competitive physical or violent sports but Uh, when men get together. If you think about when men get together, they get together in two places, basically. Uh, They either get together at sporting events or they get together at bars. And alcohol is usually a part of both of those events. Um, There may be some more wholesome civic activities or religious activities, but generally, um, those are how we gather. So we have to give men a new way of gathering together.
2: Um, David, when will your book be coming out and who's publishing it?
3: It's going to be coming out in January and if you Google on org, it's being published by the Hanley Foundation in West Palm Beach, Florida and uh, it should be coming out in January.
2: Okay, as we go to our next break um, please join us for our final segment when we will be talking about addiction and cultural differences around the world.
0: A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness.
5: The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, A Conversation of Hope broadcast each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, A Conversation of hope through education and conversation there is hope
0: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
1: You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's
2: get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Uh, We were talking in our last segment about... Uh, different tools in the toolbox for treating men. And David, you mentioned being in the Himalayas, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about addiction in other cultures in terms of um, do other cultures experience it the same way? Um, is, are the, the treatments we have in America, are they effective in other cultures?
3: Well, let's start by uh, getting, dealing with some of the myths or stereotypes that we might have. And My area of, of interest is primarily in Asia, so I'll talk about that. Uh, when you think about the largest consumption of alcohol in the world, uh, we normally think of countries like Germany or France, but Asia actually has the largest consumption in the world right now. Uh, Korea and Japan are right up there, number one and number two. And right behind that is China. Uh, normally we think of Chinese as having very low incidence of alcoholism, and uh, traditionally they have. But at the current rate of growth of alcohol and drug abuse, uh, if it continues on the current path within the next 10 years, China will have the, hard, the largest rate of alcoholism per capita uh, in the world. Um, now what happens for Asians is that they have something called the flushing phenomenon. Now, We all have that. So when you take a drink, you flush in the face and you can feel it. But, and, and Asians flush faster than Caucasians tend to do. But they go out there with the clear intention of getting drunk. So that, for instance, if you ever go to a business meeting in China, it is really bad form and loss of face if you don't, uh, drink, uh, strongly with them. They don't trust you with that. So there is a, clearly a cultural bias about that. Asians believe that most of these mental health issues that we would think of them have an organic basis to it. In other words, there's a clear connection for them between body and mind, and that things like alcoholism is just a, is a bad habit, and that the role of willpower—if you—if ha- you really wanted to stop drinking, you could do this. It's not a disease, uh, and it, it clearly has something that has a physical symptomatology to it. So Asians will tend to somatize an awful lot. They will come to you with physical complaints, uh, headaches, gas, fatigue, restlessness, appetite problems, sleep disorders. So that is what you are going to hear first. And they are not going to talk much about their substance abuse issues. Um, And the the acceptable issues that they will come and seek you help, help with for would be things like financial or academic or career or parenting issues. The whole concept of a talking cure uh, for Asia is really a foreign concept, uh, very underutilized by Asians, particularly even Asians in America, uh, because this is something that we should be able to handle ourselves. So if you're working with Asians, uh, either in America or overseas, uh, there's some, some key things that you have to think about in working with them. First of all, they value directness and and, uh, an active approach. So when they go to their doctor, they want a straight answer. Uh, They want someone who emphasizes their credentials, which may sound countercultural to us in America, but when you're working with an Asian, uh, it's... It's a good thing to say things like, in my experience with working similar cases or in my professional judgment, or I am Dr. Powell, uh, and displaying your diplomas and your licenses and your books are all things of being of giving credibility. And for us, that's just the opposite. We want to be kind of more humanistic and more client-centered, and with an Asian population, you have to take just the opposite approach. So we have to be really sensitive to working with cultural differences, uh, particularly with working with Asians and the growing population that we're seeing.
6: Good afternoon, folks. Uh, my name is Ed Olson. I'd like to ask a question. Sure. Sure. Uh, Dr. Powell, I was looking on, uh, reading on the, the bio here that you are currently uh, involved in helping to establish Alcoholics Anonymous uh narcotics anonymous al anon in asian countries and in particular in china there are i believe some political considerations that may come in conflict with the principles of aa al anon how are you uh, how are you dealing with those situations well when the steps the steps were translated 12 steps were translated into
3: mandarin in 2000 uh obviously the first couple steps start to talk about god mm-hmm. and how do you do that in uh, and about Communist country. That was exactly my thought. <laughs> and there are seven words, I don't speak Mandarin, but there are seven words in Mandarin to promote the, the concept of God, uh, from totally transcendent, higher, other, as a higher power, to somebody a little bit bigger than me, so that when they chose the words, they chose the word, uh, somebody a little bit bigger than me, and that was palatable. The, the bigger problem that we had in starting 12-step programs, and by the way, there are now meetings in six cities in China in Mandarin, which didn't exist prior to the year 2000. Uh, the bigger problem is that in China you're not permitted to have gatherings of people without uh, government approval. So, And there's no things like churches or civic places that you can gather. So if you have a meeting of six or more people, you're supposed to license or register your group with the government. Uh, now, as of January of this year, all bets are off on what's going on in China. If you want to see change uh, in preparation for the Olympics, all of the rules that uh, the media and uh, everyone's played under for the last 50 years are changing. Um, so we don't really know what the rules are anymore uh, in terms of how to deal with that changing population. So what we've tried to do is just to stay below the radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Just to, to keep uh, keep meetings quiet. Um, one of the things that happens because narcotics are registered, so if you're a heroin addict, you're registered by the government. So NA and twelve and and AA generally try to keep themselves arms length. They don't want really much to associate with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the alcoholics going into AA meetings are fearful that they might be photographed um, going into with a narcotics uh, and an NA meeting. So we really have tried to keep them all separate. I don't know if that answers your question in terms of the political issues.
6: No, I, I, think, you've, I think you've hit it right on the head, and it, it, it really sounds like it's, it can be very prob- problematic for anyone to um, to really participate in a in a self-help program in that country.
3: Well, uh, up until fairly recently, those meetings were held uh, in private homes, uh, I, as I said, just below the radar. See, One sounds of the things like that the actually helped us tremendously was SARS. When the SARS epidemic hit, uh, the understanding there was that we couldn't hold meetings in uh, hospitals anymore where we were meeting. So we started, we asked permission from the government to hold those meetings in. We we now have a hotel room in downtown Beijing, which is the AA club where the meetings are now held. So uh, if you want to see where the future is going to be, just look overseas to, to Asia. If you put together China and India, that represents 40% of the world's population. Mm -hmm. Um, And they are quickly modernizing. Just one quick statistic. Right now, there are 350 million Chinese that are migrating from the countryside into the city, which is the largest mass migration in the history of the world. it's going to change everything that we want that we know what to do. And a book that I highly recommend is called Two Books I'd recommend to you. One is called China Road uh, by Rob Gifford, uh, who is with uh, NPR. And the other one is The World is Flat by uh, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times. Both of which talk about how the whole world is going to be put on end here with the modernization of China and India. Dr. Powell, Mary, thank you very much. Thank,
2: thank you. you.
3: Thank Bye-bye. you for the
2: question. You know, that brings to mind I was recently in Vietnam and Cambodia and um, when looking at a 12-step group how do Buddhist countries embrace 12 steps?
3: Well, uh, as a practicing Buddhist I'll answer that question. Uh, I just finished teaching a class on Buddhism. Uh, We have no problems with that in most cases. Uh, The whole concept of energy and higher power at at all of the Buddhist meetings I go to we have 12-step meetings as well. So it's not incompatible.
2: That's great. Um, this has been a very quick hour, and thank you so much, Dr. Powell, for you, uh, speaking with us. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners from everyone at Westbridge, and a special thank you to Hobart College for uh, letting me broadcast from here today. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you.